Welcome to the Way Community Podcast. Here you'll find various teachings and messages from within our community and also from guest speakers. If you're interested in finding out more about us, visit our website, the-way.com.au. We pray that this episode edifies you. Well, welcome everybody. That was actually my introduction. Um, I'm, I'm actually serious about that being a bit of an introduction because I'm really surprised at how many people, when you start talking about the last days, end times, the rapture, the second coming, how much fear is wrapped around this subject. And uh, uh, it's not supposed to be that. Um, Paul calls it the blessed hope. And if, if this subject is something that causes you to, um, to feel afraid or, or anxious or dismayed, um, then I, I would suggest to you that it's actually a sign that there's actually something very wrong with what you believe on this subject. Because if, if, the, uh, if the, the reality of, of what we're talking about, that you, you really understood it, when you think about the return of Jesus and the day that you meet him, what it should uh, cause in your spirit is, is joy, excitement, a thrill, the sense of the sense of homecoming and reunion, and and so over these next weeks, what I want to do is take some time to to really outline to you uh, two great concepts, being the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. And these two concepts will stand like uh, two great tree trunks out of which everything else about the last days branches. So these next four, maybe five, maybe six weeks. Um, it's, it's so hard for me, people. It's so hard for me. This subject is, is so rich and full and, and the Bible says so much about it. You've got to understand that there are twice as many prophecies about the second coming of Jesus as there is about the first. So when it comes to prophecy, the majority of it is yet to be fulfilled. Now you think about that there is something like 109 prophecies about Jesus in his first coming, and there's vastly more than that about his second. So, so it's a big subject. But really what I want to do over these next few weeks is to paint out these two key concepts to you. And by doing so, I'm, I'm really hoping that at the end of it, you walk away with a joy and a thrill and truly understand what the blessed hope really is. I was having a bit of a conversation with someone today 
about uh, this very subject, and he raised the the issue of well, don't people who get like obsessed with end times kind of uh, you know get so caught up on that that they don't they don't actually do anything; they just sit around, you know. They it you know it doesn't make people go and and share Jesus. In actual fact, the opposite is true. Regardless of what you believe on end times, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mid, pre-millennial, post-millennial, mid-trib, preterist, partial preterist, or any of the other mixes in between, if you have got a strong view on this subject, it will cause you to want to share the gospel. Now, you don't have to understand end times to be an evangelist, but you can't understand end times without being an evangelist. When you get into this subject, it will cause a passion to develop in you for the fact that Jesus is coming again and you don't want family, friends, workmates, or even strangers to miss out on the joy of what's coming. And so, like everything that happens in the way, even around our teaching, I'm really hoping that you're going to find this little course to be truly transformative. And uh, uh, for some of you, uh, you may have been brought up on, on certain teachings and, and ideologies, and maybe I'm going to shoot those down. Or maybe I'm going to teach you things and you go, yeah, yeah this is kind of like what, what I've heard in the past. But you've got to understand that for, for me in teaching this subject, I'm going to teach you what I believe is truth. I'm not actually interested in unpacking all the different views. There are plenty of people and plenty of places that you can go to get really strong alternative views. But... If I thought that those views were true, then that's what I would be teaching you tonight. So I, I'm I, now I, I, there's a guy by the name of Grant Jeffrey who's um, one of my favourite eschatologists, and eschatology is the study of end time events. Okay, so um, soteriology is the study of faith, um, uh, angelology the study of angels and demons, eschatology. The study of end time events. Okay. Grant Jeffrey, a great eschatologist, he said, if you find someone that believes exactly the same as you on end time events, you have found a fool. <laughs> All right? So there are so many people who have so many differences of opinion on this subject. But I want to present to you my opinion. <laughs> so I, I encourage you to be skeptical on, on this subject. And by skeptical, I mean be a good Berean. Right? The Bereans, they received the word gladly and then sought the scriptures for themselves to see if it was so. And I'm going to help you search the scriptures because we are going to be getting a lot of word around this subject. So um, let's, let's just get into some, some instructions before we really get underway. Um, 
please, tonight and in future nights, take notes. All right, this, this is a pretty heavy subject. So as I've said there, don't be lazy. Record scripture references and key points and write down questions to ask later. Um, for the sake of time and the fact that we are recording these sessions, uh, please refrain from interrupting with questions, also asides and anecdotes and things like that because we are trying to get a recording for this for future use. Um, but at the conclusion of the session, I will be happy to answer questions or argue any points with you. However, be ready to be shot down with prejudice because I do know my stuff on this subject. Uh, I have been studying this since I was in my early teens and, and it is a passion of mine. And do not be surprised if you walk away from these four or five or six weeks with a, with a passion for this subject yourself. Uh, now, as I've put here, this is my course. It's not a forum for you to promote your opinion. Uh, if you want to do that, you go run your own course on the subject, okay? Um, so we are going to have a great time, though, unpacking the idea of what has become a very um, non-politically correct, and even in church circles, not a cool concept, which is uh, what is termed the rapture. Um, I, my father recently, he said, I, I, I'm tired of using the term the rapture because people get uptight about it. So now he talks about the consummation of the church. And I, I kind of love that picture, you know, that, that the, the, the rapture is actually the, the, the consummation, the climax, uh, the conclusion to God's purpose on the earth through you, the ecclesia, the church. And so we're going to unpack that. We're also going to have a look at the second coming. As I said, the second coming, there's more said about Jesus' second coming than there is about his, his first. And we're going to unpack that. But tonight, we're really going to get stuck into a subject that also has a lot of confusion around it, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be, we're going to be having a look at the three R's, <laughs> not reading, writing, and arithmetic. The three R's being resurrection, rapture, and return of Jesus. Now, the thing is, on this subject, everybody says, well, I just believe what the Bible says. Right? I, I just want to, you just tell me what the Bible says and I'll believe what the Bible says. All right? Now, if that was the case, that all you had to do was believe what the Bible says, we wouldn't have all the opinions on, the, on this subject. And there are so many. There are... There are 13 main distinct schools of thought on end time events. 13. And that's, that's just the main streams of thought. Um, so everyone's got opinions on this. 
uh, including me. And so what you're getting over these next few weeks is my opinion. But of course, it, it's, it's not just my opinion. Uh, I subscribe to a school of thought. And we, we'll unpack that. I don't want to hit you with too many terms and thoughts. Uh, really what I want to do is show you the scripture and, and as I said, give you these two key pillars which everybody agrees th that they have to be addressed and you have to have an answer on them. But what that answer is and how you put those pieces into your picture is where people differ on this subject. Does that make sense? So what I want to do is it's a bit like, you know how when you do a jigsaw puzzle, what's the first thing you do when you do a jigsaw puzzle? Sorry? The corners. That's it, right? You get, you get the corner pieces, you, you scramble through the box of a thousand pieces, then you go, where's the corners? And, and once you get the corners into place, you can put the sides in and then you've got a framework to work off, okay? So the corners that we are going to work with in this are those three R's, resurrection, rapture, return of Jesus. And the other corner that we're going to be looking at is judgment and what judgment looks like and what judgment looks like for the believer. So those are like our four corners. Over this course, we're going to fill in some, some sides, give you a framework or a scaffolding off which you can then start uh, piecing the things that you read in Scripture to that and go, oh, I see now how that fits because I've got a scaffold off of which I can now hang these, these ideas that I'm, I'm exploring in the Scripture. Now, you may choose, this jigsaw puzzle is a, is a um, trans-dimensional, interdimensional puzzle. And so while we've got corners and sides, you can actually move those corners and sides around and put them in different places and still end up with a picture. But uh, I, I'm going to show you how I've put those together. And, and I trust that from that you're going to be able to um, really fill that picture out for yourself. So uh, as we go through, tonight we're going to hit on the resurrection. Then we're going to do, um, actually, after this, next week, what I want to do is explain how the church does not come under judgment and talk about a subject that is all throughout the New Testament called the Bema Seat. That's actually what we're going to hit next week. Then we will do the rapture and we're going to have a look at what the scripture has to say about it. And as we look at it, we are going to write, you are going to write a definition of what the rapture is. So when you walk away, you will know for yourself what the rapture is by looking at all of the scriptures on the rapture. Then after that, we're going to have a look at the second coming. We're going to learn 
what the scripture has to say about the second coming. And then on that, we will write a definition on that. So you will end up with two very clear understandings on what these subjects are. And then in the last session, we're actually going to compare the two different events and... I trust that by doing so, you're going to understand how, number one, that they are different, and number two, that they take place at different times as well as being different events. So that's the broad outline of what we're going to have a look at. So let's get into the resurrection, a key foundation to Christian faith. Everybody believes that there will be a resurrection. Any Christian faith from the Roman Catholics to the Syrian Orthodox to the Evangelicals to us crazy Pentecostals, everyone believes in a resurrection of some description that somehow it's going to take place. So let's tonight have a look at some of the scriptures on this and see what the Bible actually has to say. 1 Corinthians 15.42. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And I, I want you to notice something. So much of the understanding on not just the resurrection, but all these subjects is contained not in the Old Testament, not in the Gospels, but in the epistles, particularly Paul's epistles. And why is this so important? We've got this idea that this subject is really um, heavy and difficult and, and is for mature believers. Who were the epistles written to, folks? Sorry? New Christians, brand new believers, Gentiles who had no understanding of the Old Testament, brand new Christians, and Paul, writing to them, thinks to himself, what, what should I tell these guys about? What's really important? I'm going to write a letter to these guys. What is really important that I need to tell them about? And what he tells them about is the end times the last days, what's going to happen at the end. And it actually makes sense. Isn't that what everybody wants to know? What's going to happen when I die? What comes after death? Is there life after death? I mean, everybody is asking these questions. And so it actually makes sense that new, young, little baby believers should be taught this. Now, some of you may say, Oh, I wasn't taught that as a new believer. I know. This is part of the trouble that we have in the body of Christ is that these basic foundational truths that give you something strong to hang on to in the times of trouble are not effectively taught. Ray Comfort in his series on evangelism tells a story which I want to uh, take hold of and kind of twist for my own purposes. Um, but I, I think this will help 
paint a picture of, of what we're, why, why this subject is so important. I want you to imagine with me two people, they, they hop on a plane and they're, going, they're flying to a, a certain destination. As, as the first person hops on the plane, the stewardess comes to him and tells him, I want you, please, sir, to put on this parachute because it will enhance your flight. The man looks very sceptically at the parachute, but because the lovely stewardess has told him so, he decides that he will put it on and give it a try to see if the claim's true. So he puts the parachute on, and the first thing that he notices is that it's actually quite uncomfortable. The second thing he notices is that the other passengers around him are laughing at him. And so it's not, it's not at all comfortable for him. Now, the second passenger, as he boards the plane, the stewardess hands him a parachute as well. But to him, she says, sir, please put on this parachute because this plane will not be landing. When we reach our destination, you will have to jump from 20,000 feet. So these two people have, have done exactly the same thing. They've put on the parachute, but they have got two entirely different perspectives as to why they're wearing the parachute. And this is what it is like with the gospel. Many people are told, put on Jesus Christ, because if you do, it will enhance your flight. It will make your life better. You will receive love, joy, peace, wonderful feelings and, and, and healings and miracles and it'll all be roses, and, right? And, and so people go, you know what? This Jesus sounds pretty good. I think I'll put him on and I'll give it a try. For others, when we talk about put on Jesus Christ, because at the end of this life, you're going to have to make a jump into eternity. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, back to the two people on the plane. They're sitting there next to each other, and the stewardess comes out with a lovely cup of coffee for, for each of them. But she's new to the job, and as she brings the coffee up towards them, she slips and fumbles and spills the boiling hot coffee over their respective laps. The first person who was told to put on the parachute because it would make his flight better, how does he respond? He's angry. He's, he's, his legs are sore with the pain of the hot coffee. He grabs the parachute, throws it on the ground, says, the stupid parachute. It's going to be a long, long time before that man puts a parachute on again. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because why did he put it on in the first place? To be comfortable, to enhance his flight. And in fact, his flight is now not comfortable at all. So whatever the claims that were for this parachute, they've been proven to be wrong. Now, the other man, he's sitting there. He's got the parachute on. The coffee's been spilled on him. He's got pain in his legs. Does he blame the parachute? No. If anything, he's going to cling more tightly to the parachute 
and look forward to the jump with a nice cool air blows across his legs, right? So this is the thing is that the, this subject is so important because it gives people a right reason to cling to Christ. You, you cling to Christ not to enjoy a nice life now. In fact, Jesus promised the opposite. He said that to follow him, you will receive trials and tribulations and pain and persecution. That's what you get in this life for following Christ. And so people who put on Jesus to receive love, joy, peace and a nice life are sadly disappointed when what Jesus actually told them begins to take place. But when we invite people to put on Jesus Christ because at the end of this life there is a jump into eternity where you are going to need the parachute of the blood of Jesus in order to survive the fall, that, that is something that causes a believer to cling tightly to through the course of this life and when pain and trial and trauma come, they instead lay hold of that. Is that helpful? So uh, one question that a lot of people say is, oh, why is this subject even important anyway? It doesn't have any impact on my life. I think I've just proven that it actually has a great deal of impact on your life. And if you don't understand, the, the number one, the security that comes in knowing Jesus Christ, and number two, the joy that awaits you at the end of all of this pain and suffering, if you don't understand those points, when trials and persecutions come in this life, you are likely to throw that parachute away because it hasn't delivered for you in the here and now. So this is why this subject is so important. Is that helpful? Yes. All right. So let's get into looking at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Now, is there anyone in this room who would say that is a totally new concept to me? Is there anyone that has has never truly had that idea that your physical body will be raised to life and resurrected. Right? And that's wonderful. So the resurrection, the Bible in both testaments promises that the dead will rise. And this is done in four ways. Number one, by direct statements. Number two, it's shown to us symbolically. Number three, it's shown through predictive prophecy. And number four, it's demonstrated to us through the resurrection of Jesus. So these four different ways make it very clear that the dead will somehow rise. Now let's go and have a look at the evidence of this. First of all, direct statements. So the belief in the resurrection of the dead is progressively taught and illustrated in both the Old Testament 
and the New Testament directly. Our first scripture, 1 Samuel 2 verse 6. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. So the Old Testament speaks explicitly about a future resurrection for all who have died. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, said, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises them up. So this shows the hope of a future resurrection. Hannah understood that there was a resurrection coming. Let's have a look at Job, chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. So after all of the suffering that Job had been through, in all of his anguish, he says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. In my flesh I shall see God. Although Job knew his body would be destroyed, he also had the promise that God would raise it again someday. Job had the belief in a personal resurrection. Isn't that interesting? So before before Moses, before the law, way, way, way before Paul's revelation, Job understood that his body was going to go into the ground, it was going to be destroyed, but one day it would be resurrected and in his own flesh he would see the face of God. Isn't that good? One of the earliest written books of the Bible, there was an understanding of the resurrection. All right, let's go to Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10. So the psalmist here wrote, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy ones to see corruption. Isn't that great? So again, here we have a promise. Not only will the soul be taken care of, but also the body is going to escape corruption. What do we mean by corruption? Anybody seen a sheep that's been dead for six months? Right? You know, corruption. The flesh being eaten away by, by worms and bugs and... And, and the bones drying out and turning to dust. And, right? so, so when anything dies, it corrupts. It, it goes back to dust. But despite that, it, as, as it says in the NLT, you will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. What a wonderful promise. Psalm 17. Because I am righteous, I will see you. When I awake, I will see you face to face and be satisfied. Another version says, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. 
Daniel chapter 12. Daniel realized that there was hope of a resurrection beyond the grave. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The thing I want you to realize is that everybody at some point is going to be resurrected. Everybody who has ever lived throughout all history at some point is going to be resurrected. But resurrected to what is the question? So there's some Old Testament scriptures on the resurrection. Let's have a look at some new ones. First of all, from the words of Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So what's the life that Jesus is talking about here? The, the spiritual life, right? The, the life that takes place in the spirit. But he, he says, he, he draws a comparison. He says, just like the Father will raise the body to life, I'm bringing life to the spirit. So there was a standard understanding amongst the Jews that the resurrection was a thing. And Jesus was able to use that framework to say to the people he was talking to, just like God is going to raise the body, I am going to raise the spirit. In John 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And this, <coughs> pardon me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Sorry, did that come up? There we go. Yeah. That's really exciting. So sorry, my slides are a bit out. So yeah, and this is the will of God that I should not lose even one of those he has given to me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. You're going to find when you start studying end times, there's a whole bunch of terms like the last day, the day of the Lord, um, uh, the return of Christ. And the, all of these terms are... They're, like, if I say 9-11, does that, does that still work for you 20-somethings? Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Just making sure. Um, now, you say 9-11, and we all know that it, that it was a specific time, was an hour of the day, a, a particular day 
that's, that an event took place. But the event that took place didn't actually just happen on the day, did it? There was this whole, whole bunch of things that went on around both before it and after it. But if I say 9-11, what comes to mind is all of that that went on around the day that those planes crashed into the two towers. Do you see what I mean? Because it wasn't just the planes crashing. What else happened around that? Suddenly America was shutting down its borders and, and they were off to war in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and, and um, Desert Storm and all of these things came out of 9-11. Does that make sense? So when we see things like the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the last day, while there is a day, there is, it's also used as a, a general term for the whole range of events that happens around what we call the last days or the end times. Does that make sense? All right, John eleven twenty five. In John 11, we have the account of the death and raising of Lazarus. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. What, does anyone know why, it's, why he waited four days? That's right. So, so the, the Jews believed that when a person died, that the spirit of the person hung around for three days before stepping into its eternal place. And so by waiting four days, Jesus was expressing his power over the eternal realms and not just this realm. It's great, huh? All right, Jesus said to Martha, your brother shall rise again. And I want you to see what Martha said to him. I know that he will raise again in the resurrection on the last day. So we find out from this statement of Martha that she believed that there would be a time when the dead are raised. From the Old Testament itself, there was this assurance that this life was not all that exists. There is a life beyond the grave. Jesus agreed with Martha. He further said to, um, he further went on to say that he is the one who will give them life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Isn't that, see, this stuff really excites me. It, re it really gets me going. Because, yeah, like, I've had, I've had grandparents die. You know, my grandfather, Pop, you were a snaky old bull of a man while you were on this earth. But in... In the, the final days of his life, in the final weeks, my father went and spent some time with him and had the joy and the privilege of leading my grandfather to the Lord in the last week of his life. So 
So now, when, when I, my grandfather is not dead, he's alive. He doesn't have his body with him. He's waiting for that. But, he, but he's alive. He lives. God is the God of the living and not the dead. So, it, you know, when, when I read these scriptures, I get really excited. I, I think uh, there was a, an old couple here in Bendigo when I was growing up who were like grandparents to me, Jim and Val Con. I'm going to get to see them again. No, they the, the, the people that Terry and I were just talking and, and before and she was saying about her father and how she's looking forward to the day of seeing him again. I never got to meet my mother's father. He, he had died before I was born. But mum talks to me about how she can't wait until we meet. Right? She's looking forward. She said, you two, your sense of humour is so alike I'm just I'm so looking forward to watching you two bounce off each other with you, with your jokes and humor you see it becomes that real they they're not dead and gone they they are in they are in another realm and they are they are just as real if not more so today than what we are and and the day will come where we will be reunited, united. Think of it. There are, there are great-grandparents, praying great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents that were praying for their family line that you haven't even met, who when you step into glory, they're going to be there to greet you and they're going to be say hi. You know, this... This lovely 20-something-year-old young lady will come bounding up to you and say, Hi, I'm your great-grandmother. <laughs> and it was a joy to watch you run the race. You know, and that's the thing that excites me about this stuff is, you know, these people that, that we're reading about in, in Scripture, they had an understanding of the resurrection. They didn't have the hope that we have today. The, the stuff that we're going to unpack over these next few weeks, they didn't have this, and yet they, they still clung to the great hope of the resurrection. They, they didn't have an understanding of, of the, the joy that's ahead of us that we have. See, the church has been robbed of something, and, and this, this course is about my little effort in giving this back and, and giving you something that is going to hold you in good stead throughout your life, regardless of what you face in the, in the future, in this tiny little fraction of time that we walk this earth. All right, Acts chapter 4, verse 2. We find the fact of the resurrection of believers was part of the early preaching, the early preaching of the apostles. This is chapter four, all right? This is, this is day of Pentecost. <laughs> they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection of the dead. 
Well, we know there's resurrection, but you're saying that Jesus is bringing the resurrection? This was new revelation. Acts chapter 24, verse 15. The Apostle Paul makes mention of resurrection. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. So right, this is the thing. When you start looking for this stuff, you find that it's everywhere. The resurrection from the dead or of the dead was basic, foundational, not just Christian ideology, Jewish ideology as well, that man, though he dies, is going to be resurrected again. So Paul is probably the biggest writer on this subject. And what's really interesting about Paul is we, we find out in Galatians that, that Paul went on a holiday. He went down to Arabia. And while in Arabia, he gets a revelation of the body of Christ, the ecclesia, us. This was something that Peter and John and the other disciples hadn't really clicked on to. Now, you think about it. Paul, a good Jewish boy, travels all the way down to Arabia. What's he going to see? Come on, you're, you're a tourist 2,000 years ago, a Jewish tourist. You decide to go to Arabia. What is going to be number one on your agenda to see when you go to Arabia as a Jewish tourist, Mount Sinai. Give a chocolate frog to Ben. All right, Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? The law was given. The revelation of God through the law. It's what I love. Paul goes down to Arabia, visits Mount Sinai and gets the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, his body, the Ecclesia. Woo! All right. So Paul's got this revelation. And Peter himself says in his writings, sometimes the things that Paul says are a little bit difficult to understand. Right? So Paul's rabbiting on about some stuff that Peter's really struggling to keep up with. But this was new revelation. So Paul has a lot to say on, on this subject. So first of all, well, we're going to actually have a look at three passages in Paul's writings um, which hit on the resurrection of the dead. Um, we, he gives it special treatment in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, and 1 Thessalonians 4. So we're, we're going to have a look at all three of these scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, in this passage, Paul argues forcefully for the resurrection of the dead. And there are three points that need to be emphasized. So let's just, let's just have a read 
of this scripture first. So, um, reading from verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. The scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body. Then the spirit body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly men and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Woo! So, in this passage, Paul argues for the resurrection, and the first thing that he he says is that because Christ is risen, the believer will also rise someday. So that's the first thing that he points out through this scripture. The second thing is that the body will be raised, that will be raised rather, is somehow related to the one that died. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read on to verse 35. Someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? <laughs> what a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put into the ground is not the plant that you will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then 
God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. It's the same with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die. But they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. It will happen in a moment. <laughs> in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those, oh, I love it. <laughs> Gets me every time reading these scriptures. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies, I tell you what, approaching 50, you start to feel this, right? <laughs> our dying bodies must be trans must be transformed into bodies that will never die our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies oh wow it's so exciting <laughs> hello people hello <laughs> i mean like, have you read, have you, like, really read this scripture before? You know, sometimes you read it, I am mortal bodies, immortal bodies, dead bodies, living bodies, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I've read 1 Corinthians 15 now. No, this is an amazing scripture. This is a cornerstone of faith. Is that one day these tired, aching, broken Bodies, dead or alive, are going to be magnificently, totally restored. As Brit often says, the extreme makeover. <laughs> Hallelujah. Restored better than they ever were. It, this is just, this is a wonderful promise. You've got to understand, why is it wonderful? You know, Jesus, when he returned, he didn't come back as a spirit. He sat down with his disciples and said, how about a fish sandwich, guys? Right? They're out there. They're out there. I mean, Jesus loved his fish. Right? Because there's another time when they're out fishing and they're not getting anything and he's cooking it, waiting for them. Right? And he's... He's eating and partaking. You've got to understand, you know, as we're recording this, it's a hot night. You know, we, we, we've got the warm weather. Everybody's sitting in here. Just about everybody's got their shoes off. And, and we're enjoying the fan blowing on us. You know, the warm, the warm air and the, the fans. And, 
and uh, you know you'll probably go home from here and have a nice big cold glass of water or something nice to drink or to eat and you see this this, this body the, the pleasures that God has given us in this world are experienced through our bodies and it's his intention to take that to a whole new level and the sad thing for those who end up in the lake of fire is they are not going to have that, the, the privilege of a body. The, this, this has been made for eternity in the presence of God. This thing that, you know, has got scars and scratches and a few holes in it at the moment. And, yeah, and, you know lumps and bumps and you know a, a bit too much in some places and not enough in others and it's going to be restored to God's perfect plan yeah isn't it, it, this is wonderful so that's the, the, the second thing is that this mortal body is somehow going to be made into an immortal one like just like the the seed that you put into the ground in that sense looks nothing like the majesty of what grows out of it there is going to be a majesty of this body that's that that goes this seed is going to bring forth something truly amazing and wonderful wow I have to blow my nose, I'm getting teary.